You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Uh, we're still chugging away in the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel. Yeah, 2 Samuel. I keep doing that, <laughs> leaving the number off. Uh, yeah, well, it's easy to do because when you realize that it's all one story, it's like, why am I dividing this up other than yeah. just so I can find things and I'm other people. I'm just forgetful. <laughs> well, we're going to be in Samuel for the rest of this chapter, but I have a feeling we're actually going to end the episode in Psalms. So we'll get okay. a little, little bit of a break there. But kind of mix it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So we had ended last week with, uh, you know, kind of this picture of David where he had conquered Jerusalem. But then we also had a little foreboding with the number of wives and the sons he had had mm-hmm. and how he was kind of, you know, losing a little focus. But then the Philistines show up and the Philistines are going to attack David because now he's king over Israel. He proposes a threat. And um, the good news is once David's back in battle, he actually, he's the David we want. He's the David we hope for and the king that, that we can celebrate. Right. And, you know, this is even going to be a theme that carries on forward and probably most notably for most people is uh, the story of Bathsheba. So when we look at that story, you know, David's not in battle where he should be. Uh, so there's some really good teaching points on that. But we're going to continue with what happens when the Philistines attack David. We're in verse 19, and the the writer says, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give you the Philistines into your hand. So he's doing the right thing. He's Mm -hmm. inquiring of the Lord. He doesn't just make a move. He doesn't do what's, you know, would be common sense expected of him. He actually takes the time to question. And you should notice there's no indication of a priest, and the answer is not what you would expect from drawing lots or the Urim and Thummim. It, it's it's more it's more conversational. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of words, and so when you compare this, like say to Judges twenty, um, whenever they're talking to God about whether the nation of Israel should attack Benjamin, where God gives these really short answers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is downright effusive that God would use this many words. And there is actually a pattern that you can see in the Old Testament when God's in favor and he appreciates the question being asked, he often offers a lot more commentary where whenever he's kind of put out or not real thrilled about the question Mm -hmm. being asked, like, you know, like any dad, why are yep. you asking why this? Why are you bothering me with this? <laughs> exactly. You should already know the answer. <laughs> and at those times, his, his answers get really short. And so it's actually a tip-off for how God views the, the interaction, which I thought was rather interesting. So verse 20, And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there and said, The Lord has broken through the enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is Baal Perazim. So mm-hmm. we need to remember Baal does not always refer to the proper name of Baal, the god, the Canaanite right. god. And sometimes it just means great. Or... Great or Lord. It's, it's more of a title a lot of times. So when we find one of God's people's using it, we need to look at the context and how they're using it. Sure. So the author offers us absolutely no clue as to what happened in this battle. It doesn't matter. The point of the battle is that God and David, with God's help, they they won. Mm -hmm. And now what is interesting is we have this word Peretz used uh, four times. Now, if you remember back to, or Perez, uh, if you remember back to Tamar and Judah, that was the name of one of her sons, and this is a direct ancestor to David. Mm-hmm. And the word there is breaking through. And one of the key elements of any kingship, any God-ordained kingship, is the idea of 
breaking through. You mm. break through so social and cultural normative patterns to create something new. And we're definitely going to see that in Jesus' reign. And uh, matter of fact, I had one professor who he was always talking about the inbreaking of God's kingdom, and that that stuck with me that God would break through to this realm to be manifest. So verse 21, and the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. So the, the Philistines had brought the idols with them into, into battle, mm -hmm. just like when the ark was taken into battle. And in that, we see that the Israelites and the Philistines really weren't acting very differently in those two scenarios. They're, they're acting very similarly, and that cultural pressure and the cultural norms were impacting Israel at that point in time. Now, the story is retold in 1 Chronicles 14, 8 through 17, and in that retelling, in verse 12, it says, and they left their gods there, referring to the Philistines, and David gave command, and they were burned. So we've got some differences between Samuel and Chronicles. In Samuel, they're referred to as idols. In Chronicles, they're referred to as gods. And David and his men are referenced in Samuel, where David commanded. David's not actually involved in the events. He's just giving the decree. Uh, in Samuel, the idols are carried off. Mm -hmm. And in Chronicles, the idols are burned. Now, to carry off an idol leaves some doubt as to whether or not it's going to be used in a later situation. So right. it, there's a little uh, little bit of dubious uh, intent in the, the action there as far as Samuel. And the idea that they would take these off as trophies or they would take them off to be melted down or these... That's kind of present in the idea of Samuel because we're not explicitly told that David killed them now or burned them. Now, in Chronicles, we want David doing everything right. Mm -hmm. So if David, if there's a possibility that David burned them, we're going to include that because we want to show him as doing the, the right thing. And he elevates, the writer of Chronicles elevates David's victory because it's not a victory over idols, it's a victory over gods. Mm -hmm. So again, we're seeing the um, the writer of Chronicles really promoting David as being the epitome of what a king should be. Mm -hmm. And David's battle here isn't just a battle with the Philistines. It's a battle that's directly fought against their gods and gods that he destroys, that David has the ability to utterly destroy. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of an aside, but it's a lot of fun little wordplay and things that I like uh, whenever... I find them. It makes me happy. In this story, Samuel has David carrying away the, art, the, the idols. Chronicles has them burning them. But if you go back to Chronicles, uh, which when it tells the, uh, of the death of Saul, this chapter 10, okay. when the, the men of Jabesh uh, Gilead get Saul's body in Chronicles, they carry it away. There's no mention of the burning where in Samuel, we're specifically told that they burn the body of Saul. Now, the, the writer of Chronicles overall pretty much bypasses the significance of Saul in establishing a monarchy. He's almost a non-entity, um, whereas the writer of Samuel includes Saul's story as kind of a foundational stage in, in Israel's formation. And so in Samuel... Saul's reign had to be completely eradicated, and one of the ways it's communicated is by having the body of Saul burned. It's completely removed from the equation, and where in Chronicles, it doesn't matter. And so I think it's really interesting that of the two times you have this, the burning of something significant talked about, mm -hmm. the two books are opposite. opposite. Yeah. yeah, and it really shows the intent of the writer. So you have to ask yourself, why is Samuel not making it clear that the, that the idols were burnt? And the answer to that, you've got to go back to 1 Samuel 4 when the Ark of the Lord was captured. Because when the Ark of the Lord is captured, you have to remember in Philistine, at the, in the Philistine country, what you wind up with is chaos and plagues and hemorrhoids and mice and mm -hmm. all of those amazing things that happened because the Ark of the Lord was with the Philistines because it was present with the Philistines. So now Samuel is saying, hey, the, 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 the idols 
of the Philistines are with the, the, the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. So what should we expect in this moment? We should expect the Philistine gods, if they have any power, to cause ca- havoc and chaos in the Israelite camps. But, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen. We get a complete reversal of what happened in 1 Samuel 4. And that's, that's what he's trying to point out. So, Which actually would be kind of interesting because, I mean, I'm kind of putting this thought together, so don't take it too seriously. <laughs> um, you're talking about, you know, when the Israelites took the, the Philistine gods, there wasn't famine, there, or, or not, there wasn't mice, and there wasn't <laughs> disease, mm-hmm. there wasn't any of that stuff. And so it kind of makes you wonder um, if there's kind of God foregoing any judgment for anyone who did take those to engage in idolatry in order to keep it from appearing that their gods were able to come in and take over his people. I think I'm following you. Because... Okay. You, you think I'm not, you don't think you're following me? I, I don't think I, I, I am kind of, so, sort of. I, okay, so, okay. so it, let's say, okay, so it, he takes, they take the, the, the Philistines' gods. Okay, <laughs> so the Philistines took the Ark, and all this bad stuff happens to them. Right. And so we have such a, such a strong warning against idolatry, and we see idolatry punished in, mm-hmm. in so many other places, but here we have the Israelites taking oh, the okay. idols. I know, I'm with and you. And so now if the idols are now in the, the Israelite camp, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if it's assumed that some of those men were using them for idolatry, would God withholding his punishment <laughs> at that time be to keep the Philistines from thinking their gods were wreaking havoc in Israel? Right, right. I get it. So yeah, so even if somebody had crossed that line, God basically going, you know, at this point we aren't going to... We aren't going to make any disciplinary action just so it's not misread. Yeah. And it can't be credited to the wrong God. Yeah. And so, yeah. I'm I, curious about that. It, it, that I don't would think be. I have an answer for it, but... Well, it's not addressed in the text, but it is an interesting idea. But yeah, the, we do see that the, the main purpose of the story within Samuel is the idea that the Philistine gods can't retaliate. Mm-hmm. And God of, the God of Israel is the God with only, the only God with any real power and authority. And so that's the reason why in the following verses, not only does, do the gods of the Philistines not do anything to the Israelites, David actually wins the next battle. So mm-hmm. that's where we're getting ready to go into is because in verse 22, we're told that the Philistines come out again and David inquires of the Lord again. And then in verse 23, God gives some very specific commands. And I think this is interesting. He says, you shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. Verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the enemy, uh, start strike down the army of the Philistines. David doesn't even have to fight. God is saying he's taking it out of the realm of this conceptual imagination that that was collective among all the people at the time. And he is actually in reality fighting on behalf of Israel. So instead of Israel fighting on behalf of God, God fights on the behalf of Israel. This is a total reversal of what everybody else has believed to be true. And even when we've talked about this before, again, Kings are representative of gods, and the the armies fight on behalf of the gods. These are not wars between people. So God's saying, I don't even need the people to fight for me. I can do it myself. And he's doing it in the situation where the Philistine gods have been removed from the Philistine army, and he's showing himself, again, to be greater than anything um, that we've encountered or the people at that time have encountered. So verse 25 I do want to. Go ahead. I, I want to point something out real quick. This is just one of the these funny idioms that uh, got removed from King James okay. when we, whenever we started updating things. So verse twenty five, or twenty three, uh-huh. if you read that, it says, um, it "says Thou shalt go up, fetch a compass behind them," <laughs> and. We, I mean, who actually knows what that means? Right. Unless you look it up, it means to go around the other way. 
So um, another reason why we have to update. No, yes, I was just going to point that out. It's a good reason to update the language uh, when doing translation work, so we can understand what they're saying. Yeah. So this is just one of those little bits, tiny bits of trivia that I picked up somewhere along the way, um, and that terms actually used several times in the King James, but this is one of them. Uh, I did not know that. Yeah. yeah, I. Now I'm going to have to like incorporate that phrase into my language because <laughs> it's kind of fun. But uh, verse 25, and David did as the Lord commanded and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. And the ark, so when the, the ark had been captured back in chapter four, first Samuel, you know, it had made this kind of victory tour or what was supposed to be a victory tour all around the Philistine country through the major cities. And now the Philistines are being driven out city by city before David and God. Mm-hmm. And so you also have um, have this reversal, but this is what effective leadership does for Israel. It, it reverses the effect and the impact of, of evil in their land, and it pushes back those things and people who God has not wanted to be there and that God has commanded that they drive out so that God can bless his people. And it's the perfect setup for chapter six, because we need to be reminded that Israel still isn't complete. The The Ark of the Covenant at this point has been completely neglected and, and forgotten throughout the reign of Saul. Mm-hmm. And so the story where, where it plays off those themes where the Ark, chapter four in First Samuel is where the Ark is removed from central worship in in Israel. And the ark gets kind of stored away for a time. And presumably it was still accessible to the people and they could still go visit it. But the the ark was not where it should be. And Saul never made any attempt to to return it. And so when we play off of these themes from chapter four, we're kind of getting this little nudge. Hey, do you remember the ark? Do you remember where it's supposed to be? Do you remember what you're supposed to be doing with it as king? And so as we go into chapter six, this event, the story sets us up correctly and in the right mindset to celebrate the return of the ark and to understand why it's so important because this is the way God made his power manifest in the nation and not just his nation, but also in the Philistine country because God's not bound to any kind of land. Now, we're going to skip over to Psalm 1 at this point. And the reason why we're, we're going to, to Psalm 1 is uh, we kind of got there in a convoluted way. And I'll explain my thought process. So Psalm 2 is believed to have been written by or for David at the time that Jerusalem was conquered. However. The way it's set up, Psalm 1 is supposed to be read with Psalm 2. So I figured since we get to do whatever we want to, because it's our podcast, we're just going to go ahead and do both Psalms. <laughs> Fair enough. And it, it, it well, is... And I, I don't like doing them in context, too, because yeah, of, of where the story is, because we don't often see that a lot of times. We're just blowing right through mm-hmm. the, uh, the passages, and at most you might get a mention of, and at this time, they think they wrote this. You should go check that out at some point. Right, right. And, well, and that's the thing. When you, when you read this in context and you, you have where it fit and, and why it was used this way, it, it really does make the psalm hold a lot more meaning for each reader. So we've got to kind of back up uh, and do a little background work before we can dive right in. So we're going to talk about some different things. But first off, if you look at the psalm uh, in your uh, Psalm 2 or 1, you're going to notice that there's no superscription. There's no line attributing who wrote the psalm, why it was written. Now, Rashi and Radek, two highly respected uh, Jewish commentators from the Middle Ages, um, they claim it was written by or for David, like I said. And even though most commentators now don't think that you can make a direct line from 2 Samuel 5 to these psalms, they do acknowledge that these were psalms that were sung during the coronation of the king of Israel. So we do still have a connection back to David. Um, And even if it even if we can't establish 100% for sure that David 
had the psalm written or, you know, somebody just volunteered to write it, whatever, it doesn't really matter because it, it is about David in that David is the ideal king of Israel and he, he personifies everything the people are supposed to hope for in a king because what, what do they want in a king? They want the Messiah. And the, David is the Messiah in that he's the anointed one. And so Psalm um, 1 and 2, of course, they're going to open up the first book. And one of the reasons why we know that they're an opening psalm is because they don't have superscriptions. And we find that in, in the structure of the psalms, and not as it just, it's not just because it's Psalm 1. I mean, that's all pretty obvious. Sure. But the book of Psalms itself is... Um, written in five books. We're going to talk about the significance of that. But um, at the beginning of each book, the, the opening psalm for that particular book within the book of Psalms will not have a superscription. And so in book one, Psalms one and two, neither of them have a superscription and the final psalm does not have a superscription. And so the fact that two doesn't have a superscription is part of the evidence that it should be read with Psalm one. Also, the last line of verse 2 echoes the first verse from Psalm 1. So this forms what's called an inclusio. So right. you, you are supposed to read them together. So like I said, the Psalms is written in, in five books. And this is important to understand Psalms 1 and 2. Because the five books, the, the arrangement of the five books of the book of Psalms is supposed to reflect the five books of the Torah. And so... They, they have a specific order and meaning. They are put in order for to convey a meaning, despite the fact they're each self-contained units. Um, the order of the Septuagint and the Masoretic, they're the same. The only difference we have is 9 and 10 in the Masoretic is combined into Psalm 9 in the Septuagint. So Rabbi Eliezer taught that the Psalms were not recorded in their proper order. And so the order is actually given, what we have is an order that obscures the proper order. Hmm. And he, he says that this was done on purpose because if you read the Psalms in the order that they were written and they were supposed to be sung, you could resurrect the dead. And that's how powerful they believe that the book of Psalms was, hmm. which, you know, who knows? Because uh, <laughs> we will never know what the proper order is. Uh, Rabbi Joshua Ben Levi attempted to discover the proper order. And a voice is said to have called down from heaven and says, do not rouse that which slumbers. And so there's a, actually an admonition not to uh, reveal the proper order because it's hmm. just too powerful. And um, one of the really interesting points is in some circles of uh, witchcraft, the Book of Psalms is considered to be one of the highest forms of magic. And it's actually one of the biggest sellers in um, suppliers for witchcraft materials, uh, the Book of Psalms in super large print so they can lay it on the floor and read it during rituals. Right. So um, I'm not you know, trying to suggest too much there. I'm just saying... There is a certain amount of power that's always been respected in the book of Psalms and what yeah. it reveals. Yeah. Now, another um, way of looking at the arrangements is that they reflect different periods of Israel's history. Mm -hmm. So book one is the book of David. They're about David's reign and the Psalms that he wrote. Book two is, that would be, okay, so book one is one through 41. The, the, the mm -hmm. chapters. Book two is 42 through 72, and this is about Solomon or written by Solomon. Uh, 73 through 89 would be the divided kingdom. 90 through 106 is the Babylonian exile. And then 107 through 150 is the return to Jerusalem. Okay. And so in book one, you have 24 psalms that are laments, eight psalms that are hymns, 39 have superscriptions, 39 are attributed to David. And it begins with the reign of David. So music defining and explaining era provides an identity for those who are inside the culture, but it also provides a way to explain the culture to those who are outside. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the, the easiest ways to learn about any kind of culture is to learn their music. And matter of fact, that's one of my favorite ways to keep my Hebrew in my head is to learn 
music because it stays with you. Right. And so, uh, you know, when you talk about young children's classes for learning new languages, a lot of times, what do we teach them? We teach them the songs. I mean, how many of us grew up singing Farajaka? And we probably butchered all the accents and the pronunciation, but we all know that little bit of French, you know? (laughs) So... Psalms 1 and 2, you know, they, they, they open the Psalms so they should be read as an instruction for how to read the Psalms. Mm-hmm. And the Psalms directs the readers back to the hearing and the doing of God's word. In other words, the study and the practice of Torah. And so it reminds us of the main truth that Israel needs to hold on to as a nation. And that truth is God is king. Right. Period. I mean, there, there's no... Um, no greater truth for the nation of Israel than the acknowledgement that God is king. And this is why the Psalms can function as a Torah, because what does the Torah say? The Torah tells us how to serve our king, how Mm -hmm. to honor our king, and they point to God as king. And so this was the accepted manner of reading the Psalm and understanding the Psalm both at Qumran, we have evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also within the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so we we understand that this is an ongoing tradition that even Christians understood for a very long time until we started trying to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and <laughs> act like one didn't affect the other. And so in still yet today in Jewish societies, this is how you read the Psalms. The Psalms teach you the Torah through the songs that make the Torah easily, easy to grasp and right. easy to hang on to. Now, Psalm 1 is divided into four stanzas. The first one is the way of the wicked. The second is the Torah of the Lord. The fourth is prosperity found in the Torah. And the last one is uh, the judgment of the wicked. So we're presenting the readers with with this immediate challenge and guidance for how to read the Psalms. And happiness is based, within the Psalm, it's presented as being based on one thing, and it's living in the Torah. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, the Psalms are never cliche. They're never candy-coated. They, they never say, hey, you're going to be happy, and everything's going to be wonderful, and you shouldn't expect to have trials. They, they recognize you can be happy in the midst of trials. Right. Because God is king. So, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. So, we start out with, um, with kind of uh, frivolous ideas from, you know, walks not, stands, to more substantial. Um, we're, we're going to talk about how this progression works through. So in, in some modern English translations where it says, blessed is man, which is how the ESV translate it. Um, some, I'm sorry, some of the, the, that was not where I was going. I skipped my lines. Some modern translations, English translations say, blessed are those in order to make the verse more gender inclusive. And the problem with this, when we begin messing with the gendered language of the Bible, sometimes we can really obscure what's going on. Because in this verse, the significance of this opening line is not about the gender. It's about the number. Okay. So if, if you're going to make it more gender inclusive, at least write blessed is the one. You know, don't, don't change the number. We need the number. And, and just a side note, gendered language in the Bible is like the worst argument to support feminist readings or non-feminist readings because the whole language is gendered. Hebrew is gendered. Greek is gendered. Mm-hmm. And, and if you think that this this gendered language is trying to discount you as a woman, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Or if you think that as a man reading it, that gendered language gives you the right to discount women, you're, <laughs> you're missing, really the missing the point. Well, I mean, come on. The Ten Commandments are written in gendered language. If we want to get real specific and real sticky about it, none of the Ten Commandments apply to me. Because I'm a woman. Right, yeah. So if you're not smart enough to read something and go, hey, I can extract this principle to apply to all humanity regardless of gender, 
you need to, to work on your reading skills. So anyway, we need to include the gender language sometimes too, because sometimes it does convey a specific theological message, and it's not about the exclusion of women. So be careful with what you change to make it more palatable for today's audience is what I'm trying to say. Because the problem was when we mess with that number, we're losing this understanding that the one against the many is what happens when you start living a righteous life. Mm-hmm. You are going to be at odds with your culture. You're going to be at odds with your, your society. And so you, you need to accept that even though you're one, you're blessed because you're willing to do what's right, despite the fact you're going against prevailing trends. And we know that David, this is what he has done within his reign. He's gone against prevailing trends. And we have this progression within the within the text. He we go from walk to stand to sin to to sit. So you you just walk by and, and wave hi mm-hmm. to you're gonna stand and actually listen to what's going on to now you're going to sit. So we, we go from these very casual encounters to Yeshav, which is the the sitting, which actually means to dwell. And the purpose here is to say, hey, you're spending extended amount of time in, in, in connection and in community with these people. And so the imagery, though, is really interesting because it evokes the imagery that was used in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. And so when we go back and read this, uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 7. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, talking about the Torah, and you shall talk at them when you sit in your house, when you walk on your way, and when you lie down and when you rise. So this idea of doing and being Mm -hmm. in community, uh, this is how you teach the Torah, but this is also how you learn wickedness. So you have to watch where you're spending the time. Where are you, what are you thinking of and who are you spending the time with? So verse two, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, he meditates day and night. Now law there is Torah. It, that's, that's the word. And the rabbis pick up on a little bit of uh, clever wording here in the Hebrew, because when one begins to study Torah, it's the Torah of Adonai, the, or Yahweh. But when once you become proficient in Torah study, then it stops being the Torah of God, and it becomes your Torah. It becomes hmm. personalized. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting. Now, the word for meditate here, it, it's Hagah. It's where we get... Um, a, a, the, uh, let's just skip that. Uh, we could go into a lot of things with this word. But what we've got to understand about meditation, this is not what we think about meditation, sitting in the lotus position, humming ohm over and over to ourselves and empty in our mind. Um, in other verses where we find the same word, um, we find it in Isaiah 38, 14, and it u- is used to describe the cooing, cooing or the moaning of doves. So okay. there, there is, there's sound. Uh, in Isaiah 31, 4, it's like a growling lion. And in Psalms 35, 28, it's men speaking. Because the ancients didn't study Torah in silence. They were always talking. Right. And so there, there's this constant murmuring. And I love like movies where you get to see the inside of a shul where the, the people are still studying the, the Torah in ways that, have roots way, way back in mm-hmm, history. Mm-hmm. And there's always this low little murmur that's going along with the study and where they're either reading just slightly aloud or they're talking. And I, you know, I think it would be so exciting to learn in the environment where you can have that kind of inter- interaction. Cause a lot of times, even when I was in seminary, um, uh, we were allowed to ask a lot of questions by great profs who, who encouraged interaction, but a lot of it was still sitting and listening. Right. And so you didn't have that, that murmur that was constantly going on, but that murmuring actually sets up your imagery for verse three. He is like a tree planted by a stream of water that yields fruit in its season and the leaf does not wither and all he does, he prospers. So that murmuring stream that's constantly, that, that flow of the Torah constantly being spoken of and, and repeated, it, it, this is the stream that the tree is planted in. Mm-hmm. It's in the Torah. 
Oh yeah, it's it's amazing. And when you think about imagery as a tree uh, within the Torah, this is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of a power because where do kings rule from? Saul was shown several times sitting under a tree. Where does Deborah speak from? It's under a tree. So this tree becomes a symbol of where someone speaks on behalf of God or someone exercises authority. And it's also places where people go for for spiritual guidance and they were trees were specifically planted sometimes in places where spiritual events happened as a way to commemorate these spiritually charged events and not only that trees themselves were seen as conduits because mm-hmm. they spanned the space between heaven and earth so you've got the the limbs reaching up into the heavens like intermingling with mm-hmm. the heavens, but then you've got roots that sink down into the earth, and in some cases, possibly all the way down to Sheol, and so they, they stand between these two these two realms, which is exactly where humanity is, but the trees join them together so that humanity can participate in, in the totality of reality. So the, the imagery gives us this basis for one who studies Torah as being one who has authority, one that people would seek out as someone to give spiritual guidance, and that his life would span the distance between heaven and earth. And he can only do this when he's sustained in the stream of Mm -hmm. the Torah. And so I, I love that. But then it goes on and it's even more. It says he's got something to give back to those people who seek him out. He can give fruit in due season because he. He has been watered by the stream. He yields its fruit in season. Sorry. He's reliable. His leaf never withers. He he doesn't he doesn't go through droughts because he knows how to find the source of his life. And the the final line has to be read in the context of overall, you know, the topic of the Psalms, which is Torah, Torah study. And the idea that if one's goal is the study and application of the Torah then your success in that mm-hmm. is only dependent on whether or not you do it. Right. Nothing else gets to interfere with that. So verse four, the wicked are not so, but they're like chaff in the wind that the wind drives away. I love the art scroll definition or explanation of this. So I'm just going to read this. It says a bird flies and chaff flies. The difference is that a bird is alive and flies independently while chaff is blown by wind. So too, although the evil man seems to be successful, he is not connected to Hashem, the source of life and success, and he will eventually fall. And I just thought that was a really great picture there that they picked up on and uh, the difference between chaff and and the birds so even though even the way this is written gives us a picture of the disparity between the wicked and the righteous because the righteous they got four full lines and it's this great picture the wicked i mean they're just dismissed in one line that's all you need to know about they're they're not going to prosper it it, that's just the way it is so verse five uh and that's within that stanza, because the end of verse 4 is the end of that stanza. Verse 5 starts a new one. It says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So this is a sharp contrast with the righteous, um, the wicked with the wicked who will not stand. Ultimate success will be determined in judgment, not in worldly success. So can you stand in judgment before God? That's the real question, not can you stand in today's, um, today's circumstances. Right. But also, the sinner will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. So sin leads to exclusion, mm-hmm. uh, and specifically the exclusion of the company of the righteous. So if you are cut off from the righteous, then you're cut off from the Torah, so you are not going to be able to achieve any kind of happiness yeah, I mean, especially during this time when not everyone had a copy of the Torah, you had to go to the, I guess, the synagogue or mm-hmm. not your tabernacle at this point or whatever they had going for them. Wherever they were studying. Yeah, you had to go there and, and hear it read or be one of the readers. Mm-hmm. You didn't just have a, you know, didn't just have a copy of it. So yeah, to be cut out from the community would be to be cut off from access of the Torah. 
And of course, how much of it they had at the time, a little bit iffy, but we'll get into yeah. that later, right? <laughs> that, we, we will definitely be getting into that later. And uh, that's, that's the thing. I, I think we forget that study of God's word up until the printing press, and even for a few centuries after that, it was never a solitary endeavor. Mm-hmm. It had to be done in community. And I think that's one of the things that, I mean, I, I know especially, and I, I've, right now when we've got this pandemic going on and churches aren't meeting, and, you know, I think some of us are starting to fill the, the, the void of, of not being in community and how much it's cut off from us. And at the same time, to realize how rich we are that we still have a Bible in our homes. Mm-hmm. We can still turn on podcasts in our homes. So, yeah, we're cut off, but we wouldn't be cut off like people in those ancient days. Right. And, and you know, and I know, I know it's not the same, but, you know, we can still call other believers on the phone. Mm-hmm. We uh, can still have a Zoom meeting if we need to. Make you use know. of those resources. And I, I, I know I get guilty of it because, you know, you, you kind of get stuck in your own head, in your own house. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, be sure and, and reach out and, and talk to people because it's, it's necessary. Yeah. And I'm really hoping that that piece of advice is irrelevant in the coming I, That would be we'll nice, it wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. So, but anyway, be that as it may, verse six, uh, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now the key, the key word in this verse is to know yada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is the word that's often used to, to address a sexual relationship. It, it really means that experiential knowledge of something. So you're not talking about some abstract, you know, like I know the tower of uh, the Eiffel Tower is in France. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I know that I've never experienced it. So it, it's the, that kind of difference where somebody who's been there can tell me, yes, I, I know because I you know, went up to the top and I looked out on the lights and all. There, there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so now... Malbin, uh, one of our, our uh, medieval commentators, I, I like what he had to say. He said, the minds of the righteous are bound inseparably to the intellect of Hashem. Hashem's the Jewish way of referring to God to avoid accidentally saying his name. Therefore, Hashem reciprocates and trains his attention to them. So when God knows us, what Malbin's saying is that God is focused on us. He's paying attention to us and mm-hmm. that he's not just going, oh yeah, there's some people down there. You know, Emily and Nathan are doing their thing. On you know, God actually is paying attention to the individual. And it's this reciprocal relationship between humanity and God that allows for life. And so, excuse me, the second line really drives home the way of the wicked will perish. Now, not I like I like the JPS. What's it say? The way of the wicked is doomed. <laughs> I mean that's <laughs> it's a little more emphatic. Well, you, that's one of the things I do love about the Jewish way of reading scripture. It, it's passionate, and yeah. you know we grew up in Southern Baptist church. You know, we aren't known for our passion and fervor, (laughs) and so whenever I encounter that, it makes me happy. So, no, that is is good, because it it drives home the point that in order to live, you've got to know God. Why do you have to know God? Because he's the source of life. Mm -hmm. If you're cut Mm -hmm. off from the source of life, you're dying. You are doomed. And so the, the writer here is so clever. And he, he does this, and it holds a lot of meaning. We're, we're presented with a contrast from the first verse to the last. So the first line says, the way of the righteous, and that's the object of the verb, okay? The last verse, the way of the wicked, is the subject, okay? Mm, I know yep. this is nerdy. So we're presented with the way of the righteous you know, as the subject or the object of the verb is under God's protection and care. It's being acted on by God. It's benefiting from God and being blessed. The way of the wicked is determined by the individual. The, the wicked is the one who is doing the action. Right. And so the, this 
this action of the wicked separates them from God. So now God is no longer in, impacting their life. And it's that kind of little subtle thing that we often miss if we don't really dive into the mechanics of the verse, because it's, it's so, it, it is subtle is the only word I can think of. I mean, to move it from the, the subject of the verb to the subject of the sentence, it totally mm-hmm. changes the, the, the object of the verb to the subject of the sentence. I mean, it changes who the, the active person in the, each instance is. Right. Who's acting versus who's being acted upon. So if we accept the two traditions that Psalm 1 and 2 should be read together, mm-hmm. and if we believe that Psalm 2 was written at David's coronation, we have this picture of David's reign being built on the lessons and joy found in the Torah. Okay. And so the thing is, the meaning is not stuck in time. And what I mean by that, we, we read this, this first Psalm, the, the opening of the book of Psalms as looking back to David, but it's also very much looking forward to the messianic rule. And, as such, it's both a celebratory psalm that we're getting ready to go into, but it's also a prophetic psalm. And it emphasizes how David's reign in and of itself is a prophetic act. And so it is enacted prophecy. And so the psalm is not limited in time or to a specific time. It explains how we should perceive time. Right. And this is one of those... I. I I wish I could just take like the pictures in my brain and and, like broadcast them somehow because it would be so much easier. So the the psalm breaks the constraints of time, but it also breaks the constraints of space because the the psalmist explains events that are happening both in heaven and on earth. So we open up with this, this verse. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Now, historically, if we read this in context with David, it's going to be referring to the Philistines specifically and the futility of rising up against God's anointed king. Right. Okay. Prophetically, it's going to point to the reality that no king is going to be able to stand up against the future Messiah. No one's going to be able to withstand the rule of Jesus. Now, from a space or geographic perspective, this happened in geographic Israel, you know, the the place on the map that I can identify, but it's also happening on a spiritual plane. And and one reading doesn't negate the other. Right. They can both happen simultaneously. In fact, they do. Usually it's the the physical revealing what's happening in the spiritual as far as from human perspective. So David's struggle against the Philistine isn't just a battle between the nations, it's the physical manifestation of what's happening in the spiritual realm Mm -hmm. as driven home by the fact that the idols that they took did not cause any kind of havoc or chaos in David's camps. They actually were able to still overcome the Philistines. Right. So kingdoms of darkness rage and plot against God's kingdom. And this is the reason why God's kingdom is the target of violence is because it is God's kingdom. So Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, verse 3, let us burst the bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So if we call back to Psalm 1, uh, we have a call back to Psalm 1 here. Kings and rulers, plural, are aligning against a single and singular God. So and remember in Psalm verse 1, one yep. yep. But we've already been reassured that the, we've already been reassured numbers don't matter in this fight. We saw that in Psalm one. It's true here. If it can be true of the righteous individual, which those of us who live in this world can witness a righteous individual live out their life, and we can see their success, we can see what happens, the blessings in their life. Now we can translate that that same kind of victory onto a God and understand that the personal victory was the result of knowing this God. Right. So you see how the two Psalms are playing off of each other. So we're also told that the attack is specifically aimed at the Messiah and the, it's named, aimed at the Messiah's rules in David's time. And that, that 
portion of what we're addressing here, the Messiah would refer to David and his rule. Right. But if we're looking ahead to the Messiah, now we're talking about Jesus. And the response we see from the Philistines who rise up against David as king over a nation, over the nation of Israel is what we will see when the Messiah is ready to rule all the earth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is a warning for us. Hey, be prepared. When Jesus gets ready to take his throne, when he's king over all the earth and people see that, I'm, and you know, he already is king, but it's that already not yet. But there's that battle against the king ascending to his throne, against mm. Jesus uh, extending his reign. So notice the protests. Let us burst their bonds, cast away their cords from us. So even in the protest, they acknowledge that this king has power and authority over them. I mean, he has placed restraints on these foreign nations. And it, it's something that has already happened. Even before he was the king, it had already taken place, or the acknowledged king, before David had taken um taken his place on the throne. There was already a little bit of restraint because why? He was friends with the Philistines. When Jesus, when he dwelled in the Philistines country, now when Jesus takes uh, over, we're going to find out that Jesus had been already restraining the power of evil. We're going to see where he has protected us from the full force of what evil would like to, to, um, to bring against us. So verse four, and he sits in the heavens, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the, Lord's of, the Lord holds them in derision. So, again, we have the shift. We're going from a, a physical, earthly reality. We're seeing what's happening in the heavens. And <clears throat> so, think about the impact this would have if you were part of the crowds and, and you're at the coronation of the king. You would be singing this song as the earthly king was being crowned, but the focus of the song removes your perspective. It shifts your attention from that earthly king that's right in front of you to realign your focus on the God and the king in heaven who's sitting on his throne there. So God laughs. He mocks these earthly kings and their, you know, their plots that he's, that they're pursuing. And, and, you know, these guys are so powerless that they're a joke to God. Right. And so, verse 5, he says, Then he will speak to them in wrath, and he will terrify them in his fury, saying, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. So God's words are going to be terrifying, and the words are, I have established my king over Zion, my holy mountain. The fact that this is the declaration that, de- that terrifies them, I mean, that's very telling. It isn't the fact that God is king. It's the fact that he has put his king on his holy mountain that terrifies the, the powers that be, the other nations. And it is, you know the fact that God rules from heaven, well, that's something that they have already seemed to accept. It's something they've had to, to live with. But now God's direct interaction and intervention of events on earth, they cause the terror. And the, the sign of God's interaction and intervention is the king enthroned, specifically the king enthroned at Zion on God's holy mountain. So the geography is once again revealed as significant, and it's evidence that this is God's king. The king that rules from Jerusalem, the king that rules from Zion, is God's king. It's not a king that rules from anywhere else that rules on the behalf of the king of heaven. So verse 7, And I will tell of the decree of the Lord, I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the writer identifies themselves as being the king. So the, per- the writer saying that God told me that, I'm the- that you're my son. And God is also identifying himself as a prophet because a prophet's somebody who sees into the heavenly realms. There's somebody who can interpret what's going on in the spiritual realm. And so he's saying, let me tell you what God has revealed to me. And God has revealed that I am the son. So God's decreed that the king is his son. And now the concept of a king being the son of God, that's not foreign. We've talked about that a lot. But this, this concept in all of the other religions was one of biological connection back to a divine being Mm -hmm. and a 
very spiritual connection too, but with the idea of a divine being having a child with a human woman. And so the, the, the link is established because the God's taking on a human body to allow for procreation in Genesis 6 or through some kind of ritual which would allow the spirit of the God to inhabit the body of a physical king, like as in Gilgamesh. And often there was a, a combination of the two. But God's introducing a new... Um, a new concept here. The king is God's son through the power of decree. Biology isn't a factor. It's the spoken word of God that defines reality and identity. So Mm -hmm. now we have to kind of do a little bit of unpacking, and I don't want to rush past this because when we as Christians hear the word begotten as in today i have begotten begotten you most of us automatically want to connect this back with john 316 i we we probably all memorized that verse in grade school if you grew up in church and so we we have a hard time saying that this verse is about david because well we know david wasn't begotten by god as far as like in the same manner Jesus was begotten by God, uh, and there is no real reason to read this as adoption. It, it has that um, the word there is yalad, which always has to do with reproduction. Mm-hmm. So we have to make sense of this, but to make sense of this, we're, we have to look at some wider concepts. And one of the, the wider concepts, today I have begotten you, number one, it can't refer to Jesus. Because Jesus was not born. We're going to talk about all this in a minute. We're going to get further into that. But it can't refer to um, Jesus isn't born at this time is what I should say. That's probably more accurate. Yeah. I was, he was born. Like, Wait a minute. I remember a story about that. <laughs> we put up trees and lights and yeah. Seems but he's not, familiar. <laughs> right. So, but with David, David wasn't born of God like the other kings. Mm-hmm. So... Probably what we're looking at is the concept of being born again. Now, a lot of Christians believe that this is something that Jesus just, you know, brought on the scene and introduced. Whole cloth. <laughs> yeah, no, this was always a part of Jewish theology. And this is why when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he, Jesus says, this is what it says in John 3.10, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Jesus challenges him on this because he knows that Nicodemus should know these things. Right. So there's six times that a Jewish man could be born again. So once is when a Gentile converts to Judaism. They're reborn into the nation of Israel. They've become a part of the covenant community. The second time is when you're crowned king. Sound familiar? The third is when you become a son of the law or you go through your bar mitzvah. The fourth is being married which that changes who you are. I don't care, male or female. Your life definitely changes when yeah. you get married. The, the fifth one is when you're ordained as a rabbi. And the sixth one is when you become the head of a rabbinic school. So this idea of being born again isn't, isn't new, and they're all based on where one is in their relationship with God. And so even the rabbis taught that whenever you were born again, and brought into these positions that you were given a special endowment of the Spirit of God that empowers you to fulfill this role. So whenever a Gentile converts, that God blesses them and he helps them be a good Jew. Mm-hmm. Whenever someone's brought into being a king, God gives them a spirit, which we know this is true because the Spirit of God departs from Saul. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, all these other situations the idea that God sponsors these works and what's David said about being king. He's, uh, he's enjoying success because God has honored him. It's because God has taken care of him. And so Radic, and this is a medieval commentator, Jewish commentator, he taught that this moment of being by, begotten by David is when David receives the spirit that allows him to reign in power and to have the insight to write the Psalms. Okay. So even the Jews believe and understand this to be a moment of rebirth, not the idea of a physical, biological birth, that there, there's nothing of that going on within the Psalm itself. 
Right. And so when I say it's not about Jesus, you know, Jesus has always inhabited inhabited eternity and where we step into it. And so this is this is God saying, you're stepping into this eternal kingdom, this eternal rule in this moment, because I'm bringing you in. I'm empowering you to join with me in my purposes. And so the use of the Son of God, as also, uh, in, as we see in this verse, we find this in Judaism, and it, it is referring to someone who inhabits a place of divine love and discipline, as we saw in Psalm 1. And so we see this divine love and discipline being given to anyone who devotes themselves to God. They become a son of God. And so this is why Jerusalem's, uh, I'm sorry, Israel's leader and Israel as a nation, they're considered to be God's child. This Exodus 4.22 and Hosea 11.1. And We need to read this passage in the right direction. Old Testament thought needs to inform New Testament thought, not New Testament thought informing Old Testament thought. And so while we know that Jesus is God embodied, a Jewish reader would uh, not have the life of Jesus to inform their understanding of the psalm, particularly at the point when David is crowned. So it's completely appropriate to believe that the psalms didn't impact the, the how a Jewish audience would hear Jesus' words. So the Jewish audience didn't um, bring the psalm into play when Jesus is talking to, to Nicodemus because even more than the fact that we have this word begotten, um, the word here in Psalms 2-7, when it's translated over onto the Septuagint into Greek, the same language we have our New Testament written in, it's not even the same word as the word in John 3, 16. Mm-hmm. It's Gagenica and it versus monogene, which monogene is what we find in John 3. So, and that's more of a unique birth. It's a, a it's a original, it's a singular, nothing else is like that. So an appropriate way to read Son of God is Jesus lived in the sphere of, be- of divine love and discipline. And the prophecy aspect of the psalm is about Jesus as Messiah, and the about Jesus as Messiah and King, not about a birth or a so-called creation of Jesus, because that's one of the things that we find with people who, um, who want to claim that Jesus is is a separate creation, a separate entity from God, that he's not part of the, the Trinity and not co-equal with God. We, they want to look to the psalm to say, oh, look, see, God says this is when he begot Jesus. And yeah, he could have existed before the, the virgin birth, but God actually puts a, a date on when Jesus was created or Jesus was born. And that's, that's not the case. So this is a good example how doing a an English word study can lead you astray. And you always want to look, if you don't know how to, to read Greek or Hebrew, take some time and use the stool, uh, the, sorry, the tools uh, that are available online, even in the Strong's. If you go through a Strong's, which will give you the list of those English words, mm-hmm. it'll have a number that will allow you to see what the Hebrew and the Greek is behind that word. Sure. So don't rely on an English word study to get you to the right place, because I could have saved us half of that episode and explanation if I would have just told you right off the bat. They're not the same words. They don't even fit together. They don't connect. But instead, I decided to address the arguments that people make based on a faulty understanding of the English versus the Hebrew and the Greek. Sure. So, because I'm me. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I think it's well worth looking into. There's a lot of good information there. It's fun. So. I mean, I, I love the fact that the born again concept was part of Judaism. To me, that is one of a key factor in understanding a lot of things. Well, if you look at, I mean, the, the more I've, I say, if you look at, I mean, <laughs> the more I've, I've studied, the more I've listened, the more I've paid attention. It's like, oh yeah, this is all the same stuff. Uh, Jesus didn't necessarily bring anything new. 
Yeah. Um, there's a continuity. There's, there's I mean, there. Are, I, now, I, I mean, he did bring some new things, <laughs> but I'm saying... Yeah, careful not to overstate. No, no, yeah, I don't want to overstate that. Because there's definitely some new things that he brought into the, the world. Uh, but there's... He had a good foundation. He, the foundation, yeah. He, he wasn't... He wasn't doing this all in a vacuum. Well, and it wasn't so radically new that people couldn't understand what he was saying or they should have a problem accepting. Right. The the groundwork was laid for them to understand his message. And I think we forget that. And so to to see it as evidenced through the Old Testament, I, I think that helps us. So... Uh, we could get lost on that topic, and we'll look at next week when we come back. We'll be talking about the rest of the psalm and then going back to Second Samuel. Okay, awesome. Sounds good. Well, I'm looking forward to that, and everyone uh, who joined us, I hope you're looking for- forward to that as well. If you want to be part of the conversation, you know where to find us. If you don't, ravencreeksc.com. <laughs> that gets you to the website, um, ravencreeksc on all the social media, and come be part of the conversation. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.